You guys ready? Where have we been? We've been in Ephesians, right? We've been in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, 1 and 2, we talked about Paul, who he was, where he came from, where's his story come from. It comes from Acts chapter 19. We reviewed that a little bit last week as well. And if you want to find out about that, I encourage you to read the book of Acts. You can see the trials and tribulations that Paul went through. You can look at, if you listened to a couple weeks ago, I, I listed several of the scriptures of where he went through, and it tells about his testimony on, on his sufferings and, and many different things like that. We've also learned that, that God is awesome, and in his awesomeness, he is holy. It means he is separated from sin. He can't be a part of sin, and through Jesus Christ, we as sinners can come to have a relationship with him. Jesus has all authority because it was given to him from the Father. And we thank and we praise the saints for what they have done for each one of us. And oh yeah, I hope you understand and realize how awesome Jesus is. That's kind of Ephesians chapter 1 in a nutshell, right? So we moved on to Ephesians chapter 2. And the theme that I've developed for this morning is Christ died for us in our sin. And we, and when we surrender to him, he leads us to righteous living, okay? Righteous living is faith put in action, love in action. So I would say um, to maybe righteous living requires sacrificial action as well, right? So... That is an indicator, anyway, of righteous living. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we will mostly be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We will be referencing just a few of the others, and then the last one in Matthew 18 we will get to. Uh, but it might not be the Matthew 18 passage you think we're going to go through. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But, our very, but by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, and I will say we were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else, okay? The literal translation there would be God's wrath. Uh, sometimes the New Living Translation um, tries to put in God's anger, which they do because it, it's easier for people to understand, but um, to understand that wrath is more severe than anger is important. That's why I always reference that when we hit God's anger in a passage like this. So who we were, <clears throat> what does our past have to do with our present and our future? What does our past have to do with our present and our future? Where we come from can often affect where we are going in life. Maybe we struggle with a certain sin, and, and as we go along in that sin, and we've corrected it through the power of Jesus Christ, some of our corrections can be extreme, or they can be maybe dogmatic, or they can be filled with grace on the other end of that, and it changes the pattern of living that we have, right? And so we have very many habits and 
lifestyles that have more time to set in when they have a longer time to affect us, right? So these are the often the ones that are harder to break. The ones that we've allowed to be in our life that have had dominance in our life, those are usually the ones that are harder to break. They become habitual, and it's often hard for us to see that we even have a problem because the classic line, that's the way we've always been, right? Oh, that's just so-and-so. I have a hard time with, oh, that's just the way so-and-so is because um, if they are a Christian, if they're a Christ follower, that's not acceptable because Christ is always changing us to be made in his image and we want to rise up and be changed in his image, which is usually not quite the same as, oh, that's always how he's always been. That's usually a negative, said in a negative context. Not always, but I would say 90% of the time. So why does this matter? Because we can't even have hidden sin in our lives when we come before God the Father. We can't come with a clean house and a dirty closet. Okay? You can't walk in there and say, God, come into my house, look around, just don't check that closet out. He's like, cool, that's the, the rules, that's how we do. No, that's not how he does. He is like, I don't know if you knew this, but I got an upgrade when I rose from the dead and I can just walk through the walls now. So, uh, uh, this is an interesting closet. I didn't open it up, like you said, but I just walked through the wall. And that we, we're going to have to work on that, right? So his standard is perfection, right? Well, how could he demand perfection from us? i got to get a water, sorry. Just going to mosey on back here to a... This isn't an illustration, really. I just need a water. So how can he demand perfection from us? Well, that, isn't that what he demanded out of his son, Jesus Christ? Has it been a secret that he's demanded perfection? Adam and Eve, they were perfect to start with. He said, you can be perfect, you remain perfect if you don't eat from this tree. As soon as you do that, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil, and then you will become sinful, and you'll have to depart from my presence. Does he say it to anybody else? Yes, he does. He says it to Abraham. Hey, if you want to be in my covenant, all you got to do is be perfect. And Abraham jumps right up on that. No, he didn't. He, it's like, I can't do that. And so he prayed all day long. And then God says, not only am I going to be perfect for you, um, but I'm going to take your spot and be perfect for you as well. So God fulfills both sides of that covenant. And what's that look like? That looks like Jesus Christ. Because when he dies on the cross for us as that sacrificial lamb, he becomes that sacrifice as well. And that's pretty daunting, amazing, and it's something that we have to grasp if we're going to accept who Jesus Christ is in our life. So because sin was not designed to be in the world, God did not design us with the idea that we would be evil. He designed us with free will, and with free will, we chose to pursue sin. Okay, so when we pursued sin, we can't be in the presence of sin because his standard is perfection, right? Again, we ask, why? God is perfect. He is without sin, 
and he knows life without sin. Okay? So he is without sin, and he knows life without sin. We do not know life without sin. Okay? So he knows what's best for us because he sees a bigger picture than we do. He understands the grand scheme of things. He knows time from its beginning to its end, and he knows before time, and he knows after time. Because he is an awesome God. And that's hard for a finite mind like mine to understand because he is infinite. It, it's simply when you try to explain the infinite, you're still only getting a little picture. And there's guys out there that do it better than me. C.S. Lewis does a pretty good job. He, he can take you outside the box really fast. If you ever read the book Mere Christianity, that is a great book for that. Uh, even uh, Lee Strobel does a decent job in uh, Case for Faith. That's a little bit simpler, but it does uh, sim- similar things. Case for Christ is factual things that you can depend on that, that proves that God was Jesus was God and that Jesus was here and that he existed and he wasn't crazy and uh, that we should trust in him. So those are very good books on that. Okay, Probably books you should read before you go to college. Just saying. So here is an example from God's word of something that we've studied recently here at White Rose. Okay, The 12 sons of Jacob. We saw this come up several times in that story. They're called the patriarchs, their original 12 tribes, and we find this in their story. They go about life of sin on their own, and they decide this is normal. So what does God do? He sets one brother apart from the other 11, and he says, and Joseph tells him, what you're doing is, Guys, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. So, yet they don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear what's going on. And they don't want to hear that what they're doing is wrong. And so they decide that um, he's their dad's favorite and we got to get rid of him. And they throw him down a sister and they sell him to slavery. And he goes down. And, but when they cross paths 20 years later. So God lets them do their thing. For 20 years, at least, right? So 20 odd years, they get to do their own thing. And if they can figure it out, more power to you. You can get to heaven all by yourself. But if you can't, and I've called you to me, then I'm going to press into that call, right? So there's a famine in the land, right? And they got to go down to Egypt. And who do they run to? They run into Joseph. And Joseph... God, through, the, through Joseph, confronts them with their sin. Says, you're going the wrong way. And he puts them through some minor trials compared to what he had to go through. But they go to jail. They, have, they get accused of stealing things. They get all these things to put them to the test to see, um, are they repentant? Are they remorseful for what they did to the son? Um, their dad's son, J- Joseph, who happens to be right in front of them. And... Are they willing to turn from their ways and turn to what God has to say? And they, we do see that they do, right? But God has to put them through some trials. He does that with us sometimes too. And the brothers, they are like us. They are unaware of their sins. Many times, they, they, maybe they don't really care if it's sin or not. 
maybe they do and they're, they're justifying that behavior. Um, or they're just, that's the way it's going to be and uh, nothing bad happened so I'm going to do it again. So I don't understand the consequences of my sin maybe. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to keep on going on the way I do until God gets our attention. And he makes us confront it through trials and discomfort. Sometimes those discomforts are very discomforting. Amen? They can be very tragic. They can be very eye-opening. They can be small and subtle even sometimes. It's best if we catch the small, subtle hints. I learned this when I was a kid, right? When my dad said, hey, knock it off. You know what I probably should do? Stop doing what I was doing. And then when he barks it, hey, knock it off. Then I better knock it off. I, got, I don't have a third, right? The third is the rope or the belt in either one of the cases. What did I just tell you? What did I tell you again? And what did you keep doing? Now you're going to learn your lesson. And guess what? I learned my lesson, right? God can do that through our circumstances. God can discipline us so that we return to him in a way that allows our relationship to blossom. Where does he describe that relationship? Jesus tells a story about that somewhere. Where was that? Oh, yeah. It was John chapter 15. He says that God is the vine, that God and Jesus, they're the vine, the branches, and then he prunes the branches so that we can come back to him. What does he do to the branches that don't produce any fruit? Cuts them off and he burns them, right? Why would you do that? How dare you? I can't believe that you would do that. I can tell you why you do that. You go out to the ditch right back down there right now, and you know what I got growing down there? Not on purpose, but I do. There's a grapevine down there. And you try to walk through that grapevine, you try to pull out some, some wood for a fire for homecoming last night, and I tell you what, you're not going to be pulling out wood from a fire for homecoming because that grapevine's all over that stuff, right? It's, it's, it's there to stay right now, right? Well, Why? because it wasn't pruned back. You know how much fruit's on that grapevine? Guess. Absolutely none. Because grapevines have to be tamed. They have to be cut back. They have to think that they're dying before they're going to produce any, reproduce any fruit so they can have seeds, so they can give up their life for the next generation kind of thing. Otherwise, they're just going to be dominant, and we're going to take over all the land and look at us. We're going to soak in all the sun and we'll choke out. I, I've seen that grapevine choke out an elm tree, kill it. And it's like, wow, that's pretty aggressive. I know it was a big old thick grapevine back then. And I killed it off. But it's just amazing to see that we can do the same thing in our lives. We want to soak up all these rays. Look at all the Jesus that I get. Yeah. And we put on this Jesus face. We think of Jesus and the love that he has for us, but we don't want to think of Jesus and the discipline that he has for us. Because if I does that, then I have to confront the things that I'm doing wrong. Or heaven forbid, I got to declare that I'm actually doing something wrong. That's hard on my ego. So I just try to avoid that. And by avoiding that, I 
Don't like to listen to Pastor Shane's sermons, that's for sure. I'll tell you that for free. Whew, he's always talking about sin, right? So I'm going to go somewhere that I'm comfortable to do that with. And they'll tell me the good side of the gospel, and I'm just going to be happy about this, and yay. Um, it's one of the biggest things that you'll get at White Rose. I will always tell you both sides of the gospel because I got too big of an ego not to talk about sin, and that's the honest truth. Because if I don't preach against it myself, um, it will show up in my congregation, right? And so I will always say the consequences. I will always say that they're, um, that's what's keeping us from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And praise God that he is drawing us to him because since he is drawing us, a broken person like me can get there. That's what today's sermon is all about, right? That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, right there. Then why don't you quit? I'm not going to because I got two more points to go. Oh, I know. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God's mercy. God does not leave us in sin, does he? Think about that. If we have salvation in Jesus Christ, and if we're truly repentant, and there is some semblance of walking with him, we are going to escape all the sin in our life when we get to heaven. Because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That, that's like, uh, next to God, that's like the definition of how awesome he is to us, right? That's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited. And yes, he still gives us free will to walk in sin. Why? Because he desires to be worshipped and have relationship with us. And it's interesting Sometimes I'll balk at that. That sounds like a dictatorship or a fascist system. You created me to worship you? No. God created us to do life with him. Okay? And when we do life with him, it results in worship. They go hand in hand. They're the same thing. When we do life in Christ, it is worship and it is, it goes well with us. It is a mindset shift from panic to peace. From glory for ourselves to grace in Jesus Christ and glory for him. And that helps us get things right. So, he also provided the solution to walk out of that sin, didn't he? 
He provided the solution through Jesus Christ's son. So, well, what does that look like? This illustration might actually help you. So God, think of him as a doctor. And you could have a doctor go kind of two different ways, right? You could have a doctor that walked right into the room and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We are going to just get you right under treatment right away, and we're going to start this treatment right away. We're going we're gonna to start with, tri- with chemo right away, and just see how that works for you, right? What are we going to do in that situation? We're going to walk right out, and we're going to ask for a second opinion, right? My doctor wants to start with chemo. He didn't even run any tests, right? This is craziness. That's probably literally crazy, right? Does God the Father have the right to do that? Yeah, he does. He can treat us however he wants because his standard was perfection, and we have not lived up to that standard. So the ball is in his court, and by his mercy, he does not demand death from us. He does not demand slave obedience to him. He asks for a relationship. That is different, okay? Think about any world system that sets up salvation in a works-based system. You are a slave to that system. You will never be good enough. You'll never have enough people underneath of you. You think of the Mormon church or Jehovah Witness, especially their pyramid system. They believe there's going to be 144,000 people in heaven, right? And if you want to be one of the 144,000, then you have to share the gospel to people underneath of you. And if they share and they share and they share, then you get to be up above them. But what's the problem? Somebody shared it with you, and probably 144,000 probably already shared that. And that's a lie. It's not what Jesus says. That is not what he says. He says we all get to heaven. And they'll say, well, all, we'll get, everybody gets to heaven, but there's just tears of heaven. Well, you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like witchcraft. It sounds like witchcraft. There's seven tears in heaven uh, for a witch, and there's seven tears of heavens for Jehovah Witness. Huh. How about that? There's some weird things going on there. So we're going to walk out and get a new doctor, and we go down the street. We walk into this guy, and he asks us what our symptoms are, right? And based off these symptoms, he runs some tests, and based off those tests, he comes to a diagnosis. And then he sets us down and says, we've discovered a problem with you, and it leads us to believe that you may have cancer, right? So we have a a decision to make, and... Do we trust this doctor? Do we trust his information? And we may ask, what proof do you have? Well, there's some of the symptoms you described. Some of us, we don't feel well. If we've ever had cancer, you start to feel really pulled down. And some of us have the blood work. Some of us have x-rays and the scans that show abnormalities in your body, you actually have this big old lump in there, and we can see it right on the scan. I had a friend that I grew up with, her son, 
had a lump in his knee that was about this big. It was gigantic in his leg muscle, and it was benign, and it was a tumor, and so they got it out, and he was fine, but that's significant, right? So he didn't have any symptoms. He was just like, oh, I'm starting to get a little bit of pain. They went in there and like, uh, you have this great big old melon in you, and that was pretty serious, because why do you get melons in your legs? That doesn't happen that way, right? But many times we start to feel bad, and we go to, and we have a choice. Are we going to trust the information? Are we going to trust the doctor, or are we going to go for that third opinion? Or are we just going to go back to the first doctor that said, no, let's just go to chemo right away, because it turns out he was right, right? No, we're going we're gonna to look at the information that we have, and we're going to make a wise decision on that, right? This is like a lot like sin in our hearts. And when God is revealing sinful patterns in our lives, we often don't see them unless we get around other people that are willing to diagnose the sin. That's why church is important. That's why men's group is important. That's why foundations is important. And the problem with sin is that it doesn't like to come into the light to be revealed. We want to conceal our sin. We want to hide the sin. It says that in the Bible. In the words of the great old philosopher Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Right? There aren't just a few rotten apples in the basket. All of them stink. Right? Every single one of us stink. We're all in the same boat. When the prophet Isaiah came to the presence of God's holiness, he replies in the New Living Translation, he says, it's all over, I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man, I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies, that's Isaiah 5.5, why do we want to pursue a community of believers that is pursuing the Lord? maybe as passionately as we are. Because when we get to heaven, I can say, and I come into the presence of God, I can say, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a community that has less clean lips than the one I was just a part of. (laughs) Right? We all have unclean lips. But there's unclean lips, and then there's unclean lips, right? Right? There's unclean lips saved by the grace of God, and there's unclean lips that have not been saved yet. Who is making that influence on you? Unbelievers or believers? Now, am I saying shut off all unbelievers in your life? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying value the belief in Jesus Christ. And when you value that, you will value friendships that pull you close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. And by his word and spirit, he will transform us into followers of Jesus who love Jesus and who make disciples, who make more disciples ad infinitum. That goes right along with the disciple maker's prayer that we've been saying every week. Okay? This verse in Isaiah chapter 5 is all over it. I am doomed is Isaiah's act of surrender. This is Isaiah's act of surrender. This is me surrendering to you. I understand that you are holy. I am not. I have sin in my life. You can't be in the presence of sin. I am a dead man. I am going to die. 
when Christ called me to ministry, I had a similar experience. And you try to say, try this in the front in the presence of God because your dumb pastor did. Oh, that wasn't that bad. He zooms in on that thing and he's like, oh, it wasn't? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Ah, oh, that, that, that'll bring the fear of the Lord into you really quickly. Amazing. What I've learned over the years is what John said in, John the Baptist said in John 3.30. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. We talk about broken clay pots when Christ pours in. He is not only pouring in himself, but the, the grossness that was in the picture to start with gets cleaned out and it flows out and it is um, dispersed. It gets it's out of our lives. And after that, it's just Jesus Christ showing through our lives. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. Because Christ died for us in our sin and we were surrendered to him. He leads us to righteous living. Let's read the call to worship again this morning. It's the last section of scripture as well. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. And you can't take credit for this. So this is me reading this to myself. I have to say that three times. Because what have I always said? Your pastor is a glory hog, right? So I cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things I have done. I can't give myself a pat on the back and say, a boy, look at me, I'm going to heaven because what I just did. Praise God. Right? Isn't that so fake? We see that all the time, though. That's like the American church. What did you do this week? Well, praise God, I did this and I did that and I did this. No. It's not I. Take the eye out of that sentence. He did this. He did that. He did this. I got to be the conduit for it. And it was awesome. You should have seen how God showed up. That is much more appropriate. Wow. So salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. It's so that none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You are made in his image. Women, you are the beauty of the Lord. Men, you are the protector, masculine figures of the Lord. He has put you there for a purpose as you were designed by him. Don't change the design. Trust me, it doesn't work out well. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So out of salvation, we do good works. Not, we do works to get salvation. That's wrong, okay? Out of salvation, out of surrender, out of belief that he is awesome, we stink, we can't do anything to get to heaven, yet he accepts us into his life when we surrender to him and say, God, I'm going to try it your way, I'm going to do it your way, and I'm going to walk forward as I do it your way. And when I walk forward out of the overflow of my heart, I get to see God working through me to be that conduit to change a community of believers, to change a community of Bellevue, to change the community of Peoria, the state of Illinois. It can happen when it starts right here in our hearts. Amen? Which leads us to our last point. 
grace. Because, man, my heart is filthy. And how in the world does he use somebody broken like me to get up here and preach his word every single week? It's hard, right? It's not impossible. But I'm dependent, right? I'm dependent on my relationship with Jesus Christ. And if I don't have that relationship, I can't preach his word. It can't happen. I've seen it. I've seen it even here at White Rose. Um, in different, different ways, not just from, not from the pulpit necessarily. But it's pretty, wow, opening. God protects this church. He really does. And I think where it starts first is in our hearts. When we're not surrendered, I think he just backs us off. Says, all right, you're not, you're not going to follow me, then you're not going to be a part of this church. When we walk together in that surrender, God works in a mighty way through this church. We become a conduit. And it's not me, and it becomes we Big things happen. Big things happen. Because it ain't me. I can't do big things. I can only tell you about the guy that does big things in my life, and that's Jesus Christ. So how does it work? Grace. Um, a fancy de- definition is unmerited favor. What's a merit? You get a merit badge, right? Ribbon. Blue ribbon. You get a blue ribbon. Blue ribbon favor. Okay, how about, let's say it this way. When we get a reward that we don't deserve, what is our reward that we don't deserve? Ultimately, it's heaven, right? But first, it's salvation. Okay, salvation is first. Heaven is the destination. God does that a lot. Works the next step. Um, gets, our, gets our eyes on the destination as well. Okay, a lot of times we stop when we get the destination. We don't want to work on the next step. Okay, I got fire insurance. I know I'm going to heaven. I don't really care what I'm doing now because God's going to save me anyway. That's not true. That's a lie. Okay, that's not really truly surrendered to him. The unlovable is loved through action. That's another way to, to say grace. The unlovable, any one of us, is loved through action. Uh my grandma would do that with kittens. You ever have a kittens that have mattery eyes? Uh, growing up on the farm or ever that, they're the most disgusting things that you've ever seen. Uh, you look, I won't, I won't get how disgusting they are because I could, but my grandma would take those kittens and she would take and doctor their eyes up. That's what she said. I'm going to doctor up their eyes because they were gross. And she saved so many cats that way. I don't know... Maybe it's growing up on a dairy farm, cats get bad eyes, mattery eyes. I don't know. But she would show grace in saving these little kittens or a kitten that lost their mom. That's, that's grace because you're going to come alongside and you're going to save their lives. Now those cats turn out strange, I'm just going to tell you. If you become a cat's mom, that cat's broken for the rest of its life. But you saved its life, right? Mercy is similar. You avoid the punishment that you deserve. Mercy is when we avoid the punishment that we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve to go to hell. 
Why? Because we have sin in our life. Why? Because we chose not to follow Jesus 100%. God demands perfection. I did not follow him perfectly, and now I am broken. I'm in trouble. So where are we at in our story today? Well, I'll tell you. Before Christ is in our lives, we sit in judgment. We sit in judgment. You can see this in uh, John chapter 3. You get past 3, 16 and 17. Read 18, 19, and 20. I think maybe 21 too. But that section right there tells us that we stand in judgment already if we don't choose the Son. Right? We're, we're in judgment if we don't. If we choose the Son, then we walk out of judgment because we're um, in relationship with Jesus Christ. But if we don't, our choice has already been made. We choose judgment because we could have chosen out. That means that God is pursuing us some way in shape and form. He is always pursuing each one of us. That's kind of encouraging. So I always wonder, how in the world did I get here? Man, I would have been a horrible sinner. Praise God. Praise God, I am not. We sit in judgment. We are condemned to hell due to the unrepentant sin in our lives. We stand in judgment. We are objects of God's wrath. Where is our hope? Our hope is in God the Father. Because he sets the standard. He sets what we're going to do. How his creation is going to go. What the rules are. Right? Who says when Jesus is coming back? God the Father does. He sets the rules. He's the standard by which we all go on. So in his mercy, he sent his son to die for us. God's mercy provided the atonement offering for our sins. How big's our debt? Our sin debt. It's huge, right? You know, if you just go out and say a few prayers and help the little old lady down the street um, carry in her groceries a couple of times, then you're set. You know, you've done your good deeds. That is what our world believes today, especially in America. I'm a, I, I believe I'm a good person. You ask anybody, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I, I, and their reasoning is always, nearly, yeah, I'm a I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I think I'll get there. I think what I've done is going to outweigh that what I haven't or the things I've done that were evil. Right? They won't say evil. They say bad. Right? Because they don't want to condemn themselves. Right? That is, that is the answer. Right? We've been there. We've been there. What is that? I'm a good person. That's a workspace system. It doesn't work. It's broken. Satan's got us tricked. We're doomed. I can never feel like I'm good enough. I never feel like I got rest in my heart. If you feel like that, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not the one you should have, anyway. Right? We'll get there. He gave us Jesus Christ to eradicate the power of sin. By his death, he defeated and destroyed death, death by death, okay? So there's your double death. I told you I'd remember it. And that we might have sin 
when we surrendered to him, Jim was talking about that last week afterwards too, uh, the physical death and the spiritual death. So when Jesus died, he also killed the spiritual death on top of that. And his um, death by death is how Matt Mayer say it in the Rock of Ages um, was death, the second death, right? I can't remember the words right offhand. Yeah, basically it says death twice, right? This grace, we were trapped. We were trapped in the power of sin and death, and we deserve to die. We're going to hell, and God said no. God said no. I will make a way back to me. I am going to bring a path that you can get back to God the Father. And he says, I love you so much that I am willing to give up the thing that I love the most, which is my son, so that you can get back to heaven, that you can get back to relationship with me even on earth while you're still living. Wow. My son, my only son, in his perfection to pay for your imperfection, to pay for your sins and pay for my sins, God will do this for anyone, for anyone, because no sin is too big for God. Amen? That's the power of repentance, folks. As soon as we surrender to him, he lives in us. In God's grace, we rest. In God's grace, we find our confidence. In God's grace, we find our salvation. Salvation springs up from the ground. What's Messiah mean? What's Christ mean? We're going to break that into an English word. Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, means Savior Jesus. Okay, so when we're saying Christ Jesus, we're giving the title as our champion over death. He is our Savior. Who comes and saves people? Today, who would, who would we put that? We probably, probably first and foremost, we'd probably say the United States Marines, Special Forces, Delta Force, things like that. We're going to think of them as the elites. They would be the ones that are going to come in and save us, right? If we ever got in a bad situation. And so Christ is our knight in shining armor. He would come and save us when we're in the pit of hell, about to go under. He would reach down, pick us up when we cry out for him. It's that cry we got to do. Salvation is from hell. It's not a, re- not a reward for, for following Christ. It's not credit to pay off a debt that we owe. No, it's what Christ paid for us when he died on the cross, the grace and the gift of God and Jesus Christ, it's a free gift so that there will be no boasting about our goodness. I sit in the same seat as you guys do. Before Jesus Christ, I am no better, I am no worse than you guys. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. So when we boast, we don't boast about the things that we do. We boast about the Lord, Jesus Christ. We boast about his sacrifice. The only way that we can understand how big of a deal this is is by understanding how much we owe God. 
in the first place, yet we can never repay. We can't do it. So God makes us aware of the debt we owe, and then he says, I am willing to pay off that debt if you choose to be in relationship with me. Why? Because I chose to be in relationship with you first. I led the way. I set the example. Through Jesus Christ, I chose to be in relationship with you. Even when you reject me, I did not reject you. Pretty amazing. If we ever start to get a big head about what we did, about bringing about our salvation, then salvation becomes works-based, and we are not saved. We come back to square one again. However, if we rest in God's grace, then we understand it is not about what we did. It is about what God did through Jesus. Then, from the overflow of our hearts, Christ wells up within us to pour out into others and to others um, the task of, of the salvation that we now have. Good works come out of salvation, so we are all in the same playing field. We must remember how bad we were to remember how deep how wide, how long the Father's love is each for each one of us. We are made alive in Christ. and We must share that with others. Peter, when he challenged, was challenged with this in, in the topic of forgiveness, Peter comes and asks Jesus, well, Lord, how often should I forgive someone if he sins against me? Seven times? Thinking he's being generous. And God says, no, not seven times. Good, because I don't think I could do that. And then he keeps going, 70 times seven. And Peter's like, what? You don't get it. You don't understand because this is how much I've forgiven you. Then he goes on, he talks, he tells a parable right after that, doesn't he? This is from 23 to 35, but I'm just going to summarize it in our closing. The king decides to settle accounts with the servant who owes him probably billions at this point, right? It's a debt that he will never be able to repay. He can't reinvest. He can't change things around. He is in trouble. The one servant owed a massive debt, and he begs for patience. He says, I'll, be able to, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back. And the king says, no. I'm going to forgive that debt, and I'm going to release you of it. Go in peace. This forgiven servant, however, he goes out, and he finds the first person that owes him money. He shows no mercy to that servant that only owes him thousands, a couple of thousand dollars. And he has him arrested. He refused to grant time for the repayment, and the other servants... They witness this. They inform the king. The king, angered by the forgiven servant's lack of mercy, reinstates his debt and has him imprisoned. The message conveyed is that we should forgive others as we have been forgiven by God or we risk facing judgment for unforgiving hearts. Listen and obey. God says to forgive we need to go out and forgive. Oh, great, Shane. That's, I love that. It's so easy to do, forgiveness. Said no one ever, right? 
It's not easy to forgive. That means you've got to set your pride aside. And you put your relationship on the line sometimes, and you go after that. Repent and follow through. Walk by faith, not by sight, and then follow through. And continue walking. Why? Because Christ died for, our, for us in our sins. And we have surrendered to him. And he leads us to righteous living. Now, I've talked about surrender a lot this morning. What does that entail? What does that look like? It's, it's a conversation you need to have with the Lord. And it looks something similar to this. Saying to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of your grace. You offer it as a free gift to me so that I can't boast about it with my friends. I ask that you would come into my life. I repent of my sins and I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's a simple prayer just like that, right? If that's something that you want to explore, if that's something that you want to do this morning, um, me or one of the elders would be happy to, to walk with you through that. We will continue to walk through that as we go through Ephesians. So as we go through, you'll see, uh, especially when we get to chapter 4 and hit some of that application, it hits it pretty hard. And another thing that's worth mentioning, if you go and decide to look at Ephesians before you get there, it's, there's a lot of times there's a parallel passage from like Ephesians chapter 1 that's later on in Ephesians 4, 5, or 6. And in Ephesians chapter 2, that's on in 4, 5, and 6. And they dovetail together throughout that for 1, 2, 3, um, line up in 4, 5, and 6. And so that's kind of cool. I've been noticing that pattern. One of these days, I'll, I'll be able to nail it, and that's how I'll preach on Ephesians. But I wasn't able to do that this time because that's, I see it, but I can't pull it together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that we cannot earn our salvation and you recognize that and you sent your son to die on the cross for us and then you raised him from the grave to defeat death so that we can have eternal life through Jesus Christ because he defeated death first. Lord, this is the message that we want to send. This is the message that we want to live out. Lord, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word that we would be convicted in our unrighteous living and that we would walk as Jesus walked, that we might make disciples of Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. As we go through every part of this day, help us to love you and to love the people who cross our paths, starting with our families. Don't let us miss the adventures you're sending our way to live and to speak the good news about Jesus today. Draw our hearts to you and to specific people you want us to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform us into followers of Jesus who love you, who love people, who make disciples, who make more disciples ad infinitum. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your attention. You guys are dismissed.